Good morning. It's 10 o'clock and it's another episode of Dr. Stu's podcast. This is Dr. Stu's podcast number 199. And I'm looking forward to spending the day, uh, an hour with you guys, not the day. <laughs> Actually today I have somebody in early labor, so that's exciting for me uh, and for her and for her family. I'm really excited about that. Anyway, this is Dr. Stu's podcast and it's number 199. And uh, I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein. I'm a uh, community-based obstetrician and practicing uh, physician and advocate for informed decision-making. I'm usually here with my co-host Bliss, but she's on an airplane today, I think, flying back from Hawaii. So she'll be back with us next week. Um, you can reach me at askdrstu at gmail.com. My uh, website is at birthing or is birthinginstincts.com. Instagram, it's at birthinginstincts, which goes directly to my Dr. Stuart Fishbein Facebook page. Uh, I've been busy posting away uh, there today. Uh, you can reach Bliss at um, her website. It's at birthing or birthing bliss midwifery. No, oh man, Bliss, you're going to get mad at me. Birthingbliss.com and uh, birthing bliss midwifery is uh, at that. That's how you reach Bliss. Okay. So, um, okay, so let's catch up a little bit. Uh, first of all, I want to send out a congratulations to the Kindred. Um, Space LA Birth Center. I uh, got a big write-up in the uh, local newspaper recently and to my colleagues, Kimberly Durden and Alleg Allegra Hill, uh, congratulations on opening up uh, a much needed center in a, a part of LA that's underserved. So we're all supporting you, we're all rooting for you. And um, that's great, that's great. The birthing community here is is pretty tight. We, uh, we support each other, we've been, uh, had a lot of babies with jaundice recently. We've been passing around, uh, Beth, Beth and I have uh, Billy Rubin lights courtesy of the Vanderbeeks from years ago. And uh, we pass them around to keep babies at home. And we support each other and we borrow stuff from each other and we order for each other. So it's really sort of a nice community that we have going here. I wanted to do um, some follow-up on some things from last week to start with that. So first of all, I, uh, we had three sets of twins last week and. And they sort of all had something exciting um, uh, going on with them uh, over the past week. So let's talk about that. Uh, the first set of twins, the only thing that happened was on their newborn screen, um, one of the tw twin boys, the cystic fibrosis screen came back indeterminate. I'm not sure what that means. His brother's was fine. So we had to redraw that, which we just did a couple days ago. We're waiting, waiting on that. Um, most of you probably in the who practice are are probably doing the newborn screens. I don't know what other states are like. I mean, here in California, we have, you know, it's supposed to be mandatory. Of course, a lot of things aren't mandatory. That They say they are mandatory and not enforceable. Most of my um, colleagues are not using, uh, most of my clients, excuse me, are not using the state uh, testing. They're concerned about the state testing because as part of the state testing, they are keeping a DNA data bank on all the newborn babies in California. Now they say you can go online and opt out. Uh, I'm not sure that if you opt out that you're really opting out. And uh, we're all a little suspicious right now of all the um, intrusions into our privacy and the um, controlling of speech and what's going to happen next with big tech and, and big government uh, mandating this and mandating that. And, you know, uh, so, a lot of my uh, clients are using a private company 
and they do a good job. They're actually less expensive. Uh, they don't quite test for as many things, but they're less expensive. And they, uh, it's great because I can get the report online almost uh, a day after I send it in. And um, I've had no problems with them. If anybody's interested, it's called uh, Perkin Elmer Genetics. And you can look it up, just Google it, you'll find it. You can set up an account and it's only uh, $97 if you're on there. They, they bill me and then the patients just Venmo me the money. And that way you get a discounted rate. Um, Another uh, one of my babies uh, from the twins this week had a, a test that I hadn't seen positive in my entire career, but it's the first one uh, again on the newborn screen and it was for glucose 6-phosphate deficiency. Now, you, many of you probably heard of that and it is a uh, autosomal recessive trait, usually in boys, excuse me, it's a sex-linked recessive, recessive trait. So it's usually in boys. Um, and uh, um, it can cause uh, hemolytic anemia and such. So um, they have to avoid certain things, certain stresses. I think there might be even certain foods or things that they need to avoid. Um, that baby got extremely jaundiced, uh, as did his sister. But part of that, we believe, was a little bit of, of dehydration. They were born a little early and they maybe weren't getting enough because they were admitted to a children's hospital here in Los Angeles. And within less than 24 hours, they were out. Um, Initial bilirubins were quite high, but with a little bit of IV hydration, uh, they came way down. And so they're home now and they're not even on bilirubins anymore. So that's pretty good news. Um, what else? Let's see. I think we mentioned that one of the babies got transferred to the hospital down in uh, San Diego County, one of the large babies at 42 weeks, about an hour and a half after birth, that baby came home within 48 hours and did fine. And they just did diagnosis of having some sort of respiratory abnormality, respiratory distress, which is, again, I think I might've mentioned this last week, which was sort of weird because that twin looked like it was about 38 weeks and its sibling looked like it was 42 weeks. Um, and they were, <laughs> they were in the same uterus, came out at the same time. And actually the one that looked younger weighed two ounces more, eight, nine versus eight, seven. So hard to explain why they look so different and why uh, one developed the problem, and when you'd think the second one would be the one the most likely to have a breathing problem, um, just because they, they don't labor as long, they don't get squeezed as long, that sort of thing. So anyway, they're all doing fine, which is great. And then this is my last birth today for a while, so I'm looking forward to having a little time off and maybe doing a couple of road trips, which is something that we all should try to get in. Uh, I'm not sure if it's the weather, we had some bad rain last week. Uh, it was quite um, fun to, to have rain and, and, and storms. We like that because we only get them a couple days a year here in California. But the weather the last few days has been absolutely gorgeous with visibility that's beyond belief. And I'm in a really you know pretty good mood. Maybe partly of it is that the uh, some of the lockdown stuff here is lightening up a little bit. Uh, I won't go into the politics of that whatsoever, uh, but I guess restaurants are now open for outdoor dining again. Uh, I know that the LA Kings and Staples Center are still shut down. They're still on rigid protocols in the NHL. And obviously we're not out of the uh, woods yet with uh, regarding COVID. Uh, one of these times, I think when Bliss gets back next week, we'll probably talk a little bit more about the vaccine and some of the issues regarding the vaccine and uh, whether to get it, not to get it, uh, whether you're gonna be mandated to get it, 
which vaccine to get if you're going to get it, all that stuff. But I'm going to wait for Bliss. I've got a couple of letters I'm still sitting on that I want Bliss's input on. So we'll get to that at some point next week. Um, okay, so that's that. Let's see. Let's talk. We also talked last week a little bit about uh, the death certificates issue and and how they sort of wanted the midwife to put down something, even if it wasn't factual, rather than put down unknown, because when a baby dies in utero, most of the time it's unknown. So they wanted us to put down asphyxia or a, a, a cord accident or something like that, which wasn't necessarily true. So we don't really don't know what the cause of death was, but we found out in the interim in the past week that what, I guess when a baby dies in utero, all you have to put down a death certificate is intrauterine fetal demise as the cause of death. And apparently that works. And it's true and it's not fraudulent and you don't have to lie. So that's good. But I'm not sure why it was so complicated and hard to figure that out in the first place. So I wanna thank Lindsay for digging on that because she was not going to sit there and just fill it out and, and lie and say, well, okay, we'll just, we'll just fill it out and lie. And the, and the interesting thing about this, and uh, we're gonna talk a little bit about birth certificates in a second, but, but they use that data for research and they use that data for statistical analysis. And if it's you know garbage in, it's garbage out. So uh, I'm glad sort of that we got to the bottom of that, um, as sad as it might be with a fetal demise. Um, okay, so um, as you know, when we do a home birth, Maybe, again, in your counties, in your states, it might be different. But in certain counties here, LA County, Ventura County, there's a whole bunch of forms that need to be filled out um, when you have a home birth. When, when you have a hospital birth, I think the hospital just does it all. And the parents just have to sign something or fill out a couple of things before they leave the hospital. And it's all taken care of. But at home, we, the practitioners, are responsible for taking care of these things. And so um, there are, there's some six page, I think it's six, six pages, one, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, six pages of questions that need to be filled out, plus a letter from uh, me, the physician, documenting that it was uh, under penalty of perjury, documenting that there was a home birth. And I was told that we no longer need a letter from the pediatrician by one midwife, but then another midwife told me that in LA County, they still need a letter from the pediatrician as well. So you have to have a letter from your MD pediatrician. You have to have a letter from your midwife or physician uh, home birth doctor or practitioner, you have to have fill out these, uh, I as a practitioner have to fill out these six pages um, of, of questions. And so I wanted to just go through it a little bit, maybe to mock it a little bit, because that's what I like to do when something seems crazy, a bit irrelevant, and again, if they're going to, what, what do they use this stuff for? That's what I'd really like to know. What kind of uh, demographic data are they using it to do? And, and, and if they're making policies or something based on some of this data, then how do we know it's accurate? Because there's a lot of these things that you fill in here that you, that you sort of dry lab or just fill it in. So let's go through it just briefly a little bit. So again, in California, because we're so progressive here, we no longer call the parent giving birth the mother. Um, and we no longer call the other parent the father or, you know, and that's fine. I understand that. But the parent giving birth, number one, is now filled in instead of mother. So they ask for the birth name of the parent giving birth instead of it used to say birth name of the mother. Okay. And I'll just leave that. 
uh, again, it, it becomes confusing because I'll show you why in just a second. But anyway, that's something that that's a change in the form. And maybe I'm a troglodyte, maybe I'm old fashioned, but you know, to me, it's the mother that gives birth to the baby. And whether she wants to call herself a female or not, that's a different story. It's still, she's the one giving birth to the baby. Okay. So um, I'll leave it at that. And of course the father is now the parent not giving birth or intended parent. So that no longer says father when it's asking for the, his name address, that sort of thing, okay? Let's see. Uh, parent number one, of course, is the one giving birth. But then it says, print the name of parent number one who will sign the birth certificate. And then it says relationship of parent number one. And then it says mother, father, parent, or other. So if they're getting worth, you know, they're, they're I guess they're trying to be polite and not calling the birthing person a mother, but then they're asking the birthing person if they're a mother or father. So again, a birthing person, not sure can be a father. It gets, it gets really confusing. I, you know, I have a 64 year old mind and um, it's really hard to change a 64 year old mind into believing that men give birth. Women that want to be called a man can give birth, but not men. All right, won't get into that any further because I'm sure I'll get some hate mail on that. Um, then they go into the, the, the um, classification of the parent not giving birth and the parent giving birth. And, <laughs> and, uh, and by the way, they, they do, they, they, they ask, they say in this, it's, they have it mother and father. They don't say the parent not giving birth and the parent giving birth, but anyway, so then under white, they have white or Caucasian. And I have to ask myself, so what's the difference? And under black, they have black or African-American. I guess I could understand that if you, if you come from some other place, um, then you're not African-American technically. And then you, they have Mexican, Mexican-American, other Hispanic, and then Alaska Native, Eskimo, Aleut, Native American, American Indian, Asian, they have Chinese, Japanese, Filipino, Korean, Vietnamese, Asian, Indian, Cambodian, Thai, Laotian, Hmong, other Asian specify. Under Hawaiian, they have Native Hawaiian, Guamanian, Samoan, other Pacific Islanders specify. And then they have unknowns and they have three boxes for other. And then they have a box at the bottom that says withheld. So again, here we are. What do they do with all this data? I mean. Are we paying, are our tax dollars paying some government worker to collate this data and then do what with it? It's a rhetorical question, no answer. Um, they wanna know the level of the fathers or the, I guess they call it the father, um, highest level of education. Okay. Why do they wanna know that? They also wanna know the mother, and they use the word mother, not parent giving birth, highest level of education. So again, the forms themselves are a little bit schizophrenic because they go out of their way to label the person giving birth as parent number one, but then in the rest of the paper, they talk about mother and father. Um, I'm not sure why, why do they wanna know your level of education? What, what does that, I mean, again, maybe somebody knows the answer. If somebody knows the answer, please email me. I'd appreciate it if you would, because I'd love to, uh, you know, my mind works this way. When I can't figure stuff out. I actually do a lot of um, searching on the internet. And uh, right now I'm trying not to use Google. 
So I use Bing, I use DuckDuckGo, I use an app on my phone called uh, Brave, I think it is, or hang on, let me take a look. It's called, yeah, Brave. And um, yeah, just for, just, just out of spite, I think. Um, they still have, in, in the California, they, we still have four questions on smoking, all right? I mean, it used to take up a whole half of, it still takes up a half of, a, of one of the six pages. And they wanna know during the three months prior to pregnancy, how much you smoke during the first three months of pregnancy, during the second trimester, during the third trimester, they sort of wanna know how much you've smoked. Again, are we, I mean, they don't ask about marijuana though, okay? So they don't ask about other substance abuse. They don't ask about alcohol. They only ask about smoking, all right? Which is, I mean, which is more significant if you're trying to collect data, smoking? Maybe it's a little obsolete to be asking about smoking at this point. We should be asking about other substances. Uh, but these are new forms. These are brand, these are re just redone. So they're still interested in the smokers, but not the tokers, okay. Um, they wanna know how you paid for your prenatal care and how you paid for your birth. Okay, I mean, it's statistically interesting, but it's none of their business. Again, this gets back to the creeping crud of government getting more and more and more involved in, in every aspect of our lives and knowing every aspect of our lives. I mean, and it really, you know, this is government's intrusion. We're not, I'm not even, even touching on big tech's intrusion and the fact that, that, you know, if I take a picture of my horse that I suddenly get ads about horse stuff um, and that, you know, they're constantly listening in even when your phone is off. I think I may have talked about this on a previous podcast, but there was a, a, a news report where a guy did an experiment and he took two identical phones, one he put on airplane mode and one he put a regular mode in his pocket and he drove around Washington DC for several hours. And then they went to a website where they could figure out how they were tracked. And it turns out that they, were, they, they knew exactly where he had went, how long he had stayed at that place and all that stuff. And they knew it on both phones, not even the one that was on airplane mode, knew where he had went, all right? And had, had, had detailed, not, not specifically what he did there, obviously, but he went into this, he was at this address, went into this building. So he went into the, the, um, the library in, in Washington, DC for an hour. They would know that. They would know that he's in the library. So this is uh, pretty freaky. You know, it's, and again, I'm, big tech may even be more powerful right now than big, um, than big government because a big government you theoretically can vote people in and out. But big tech, um, especially the monopolies like uh, Google, Facebook, Twitter, in, well, Instagram is Facebook, um, and Amazon, those are those guys are really. I mean, you can't really compete with them. And then when you when you try to compete with them, um, they rig the game. Uh, a lot of you probably have been following what happened with GameStop and how a bunch of guys got together and and uh, gave gave a gave a good one to the um, the hedge fund people. And then big tech actually shut them down. Now they they have a different reason for why they shut them down. They said it was a monetary reason, but and maybe that's true but it certainly smells bad because little guy was winning and they got shut down. And um, yeah, so 
we, you know, we have to speak out. I mean, those of us that speak out are going to get censored. Uh, I haven't, I haven't noticed censoring on my page lately, although I told you a while back that I did notice that I was um, getting some warnings on my website when I would just even link to something about vaccines. And I, I noticed a decreased flow on Facebook. Uh, when I used to make a post on Facebook, I'd get, you know, 500 to 5,000 people reached is what Facebook uses, I think. And now sometimes I'm posting something and I'm getting 300, I'm getting 50, I'm getting 100. Um, now it could just be me and I could be a, a less popular, but I, I, I don't think so. So, okay, anyway, so I'm, I'm back to my form here. They, they also wanna know the date of your last live birth if you've had a previous child. Okay, these are, I just, I wrote down little notes here. I said, well, why do they wanna know that? Okay. And I just don't understand uh, that these forms, and then they and then they actually passed a law, or they not a law, an administrative rule turned out not to be a law in California that said that the parents need to report this stuff within 10 days. And if they don't, then it's the responsibility of the home birth practitioner to come down to the city hall or the register or the registrar and, and get these in within 10 days. Or if you didn't do it, it was going to be a misdemeanor. Right. Now, I don't know how administrative people can, can well, I do know how, because it's, it's happening right and left. Laws are being made or administrative laws or rules are being made, which carry the force of law, but they're not going through the legislative process, not being made by state legislatures, not being made by Congress. Um, they're just, they're rules that if you don't follow a rule made by some unelected bureaucrat, you, you can th actually get fined or punished. Um, so they have this rule. They're not going to enforce it, I don't think because I don't think it's legally enforceable to say I'm gonna charge you with a misdemeanor if you don't uh, get your patients to, I mean, some people take weeks to come up with a name. You know, I know that Orthodox Jews, they, they don't name their, their sons until the eighth day. And, and I have one right now whose baby was quite jaundiced and they postponed the bris. So there will be no naming of the baby for at least another week or two. So there, technically breaking some administrative law and then ultimately it falls on me that I'm the one that's breaking it. And uh, and if it sounds confusing, it is confusing because I could be breaking a rule and not even know it because there's so many rules. You know, I always said I, if I ever ran for office, which I never will, but if I ever ran for office, my job would be to go to the city council or to the state legislature and go through laws and get rid of laws. I would not create any new laws. I would just get rid of laws because there's just way too many regulatory laws that people don't know. And just about every day, you and I could probably, are probably breaking some rule or some law and don't even know about it. But it's but certainly when it comes to this birth certificate stuff and, and this, this paperwork, and it's, it's so easy to miss something or forget something or do it wrong and it's, it's, yeah, it's the practitioner that's always going to suffer in this scenario. You know, if, if the state screws up or the registrar screws up or something like that, nothing ever happens to them, all right? But if we screw up, we, you know, we can get reprimanded, we can get yelled at, and theoretically we can get fined. Now that's, again, it's not gonna happen. If it ever happens, you'll hear about it, believe me. Okay, um, let's see if I've vented enough on that stuff. So let's get rid of that. Let's see what I've got here. Um, Okay, so, um, you know, most of you know I'm from Minnesota and I 
have an affinity for my home state, even though I haven't lived there since 1982. Uh, but I'm still a big Minnesota Twins fan. I'm still a Minnesota Vikings fan. And I used to be a Minnesota North Stars fan, uh, but they moved to Dallas. So I became a Kings fan, which has had two great years and the rest very frustrating. Uh, I still follow Minnesota College, University of Minnesota sports, mainly their hockey team. And they're doing good this year. So I, I, I pay attention. All my family's back there. Today happens to be my sister's birthday. Happy birthday, Sue. Um, my older sister, who I love dearly, and um, who has five grandchildren, and I have none. Uh, hint, hint, she'll, my, <laughs> to my kids. Uh, but anyway, so I, I got a I got a thing in the mail from the uh, physicians for inf email, obviously from Physicians for Informed Consent, which is a really good group that I belong to, that looks at uh, protecting the rights of the private practitioner and the individual patient. So it's, it's really counter to big organizations like the AMA, which are industrial lobbies that lobby really for themselves and for their monetary gain. Physicians for Informed Consent doesn't do that. And many of you have known, I've talked about them before. They, they started when it, when, the, when it became clear in California, we were going to have mandatory vaccines to go to school and that. So they've been labeled with different pejorative names. They're a really good organization. They sent me a uh, notice about a physician in Minnesota named Dr. Zajac, who is a internist pediatrician who is being reprimanded by the Minnesota Medical Board and they're trying to remove his license, uh, similar to what they've done in Oregon to uh, my colleague, Paul Thomas. They're trying to remove his license for giving informed consent. And I'm not being hyperbolic here when I say that. Apparently what this is about is that when patients come to his office, he gives the parents a written informed consent about vaccines. And I'm sure it's well referenced and probably extremely accurate. And it probably has referencing the CDC and other reliable sources, and it gives them information. But the Minnesota Medical Board has determined that if a parent decides not to vaccinate their kid, it must be because Dr. Zajac is skewing his counseling because no one in their right mind would not get vaccinated. So instead of honoring the fact that he's giving him clients form consent, they are trying to take away his license. He's not had any complaints from any of his patients. What he's had is complaints from colleagues, even some of them from out of state, when he's spoken on, I guess, at conferences or webinars and given his opinion. These people will write to the medical board and the medical board has every right to like investigate um, the claim that he might be doing it, but to actually go after his license and try to stop him from practicing because he gives informed consent. I'm just putting this out there. I don't have an answer for it. I, I don't, I'm not surprised that we're, we've ended up at a, in a period of time where um, things that seem like they should be are, are not, and things that seem like they're not should be or are they things that th things that are not reasonable seem to be the things that are happening in my profession and in you know in the, in the world in, in general so uh it's a shout out to Dr. Sajak he's going it's going to cost him a fortune to defend himself and he's little and the state is big and the state has endless funds to go after him and you can never get a straight answer from anybody. Everybody will always hide behind 
the idea of confidentiality or it's an ongoing investigation. I mean, you've all heard the excuses before. So the frustration level for Dr. Zajac uh, is going to be astronomically high because no one is responsible for what's going on. There's no single person that he can't, he could try to write the attorney general. He'll, he'll never get a response back from the attorney general. All right. But I would plead any of my colleagues who are watching in Minnesota to contact the attorney general and ask, and ask his office, what are they doing? How are they protecting the citizens of Minnesota by, which is the, which is the mandate for the medical board by taking a license away from someone who gives informed consent, whose patients love him and don't complain about him. Very similar to Paul Thomas in, in um, Oregon, the Oregon medical, they didn't, they didn't like try to go after, uh, try to reprimand him or investigate. They, they took away his license because they thought it was such an emerging uh, threat to the, to the citizens of Oregon as does the Minnesota Medical Board obviously think this is an emerging threat that giving people choice is scary because when it comes to vaccines, the science is settled and we have um, no leeway in that. And if you choose to give information about it, then not only are you being uh, dangerous, you're, you're, you're labeled as an anti-vaxxer. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a new thing now about uh, people who it's it's a new terminology. It's a use of language that that is actually frightening to me. There, somebody is like, if you're you you know, there's now people that are anti-hunger. Okay, so if you don't like the methods by which they want to solve hunger, which may be draconian, maybe taxation, maybe something really really awful methods, and you and you argue against the method, not the point you are labeled as a bad person because how can you be anti-hunger, all right? So they, they give themselves a label that makes it impossible because by the way, who's pro-hunger, all right? I'm anti-homeless, all right? And I, want, and I want to take your tax dollars to give to the homeless people. And you say, no, but I don't think you should be taking my tax dollars. You should be doing this or that, the other thing. The minute you say that, um, then you must be anti-homeless. No, no, I'm anti the anti-homeless, okay? I'm not anti-homeless, or I'm anti the anti-hunger, okay? So, you know, if you're anti, if you, if you think that the vaccine schedule is wrong, or you think that certain vaccines are unnecessary, or there's evidence to suggest that in some people vaccines might be harmful, um, you are not being an honest ethical physician, you are being dangerous and anti-vax. And this is how they get away with this stuff and on and on it goes. So shout out to Dr. Zajac, keep fighting. Okay, so now I have um, three letters that I'd like to get to, hopefully we'll have time. Um, they're on uh, a placenta, on IUGR and on breach. And I themed them all sort of, the letters say what was said in the letter versus what it meant in, in reality. So let's start with um, Susan from Calgary. And Susan writes about placental aging. So we're gonna talk about that. Let's see, Susan is not on. Okay. Um, question for you around post-term dates and home births. Why is it considered so dangerous? What is the real risk of stillbirth? Her second baby was a planned home birth, but towards the end, I started to feel baby move less and less 
She was testing out fine, but it was getting eerily quiet in the last day or two, and I started to worry, and I don't scare easily. I agreed to an induction at 42 weeks. Labor was smooth, and I was able to labor without an epidural, which was really important to me. By the way, I was 41 at the, age 41 at the time of baby's birth, going into... Oh, and she was going into week 42 of labor with a baby conceived through IVF. I know none of these things on their own is a risk factor. Thank you, thank you um, Susan, because you're right. None of them are, you know, they, again, the definition of risk factor is, means different things to different people. So we should probably talk about that. Hang on, I got to let Lorena in here. Um, so it means different things to different people, all right? If something is a slightly greater risk, is that a risk factor? Well, yeah, you could say it's a risk factor, but technically speaking, it's not, you know, what I'm talking about risk factors, I'm talking about something where there's a significant increase in the risk. So um, IVF pregnancies, there is a slight increased risk of certain complications happening. Um, 42 weeks, there's certainly an increased risk of certain complications happening. But if you're doing normal testing, then the risk factors are really, uh, they're small. And of course, at age 41, when you've, if, you know, if the genetic testing issue is not an issue, then, then I don't consider age to be a significant issue um, when otherwise everything else is normal. Um, okay, so I had no signs of labor and I did, I did the sweeps, castor oil, pumped, you name it, she said, I did it. When I was in the hospital, the doctors commented on my placenta and they said, quote, it was a good thing that I decided to be induced when I did, unquote. Something about the location of the calcification and the fact that her cord was super short. Is this a real thing or is it just more medical fear-mongering? Don't placentas normally calcify with age and is it not a real, and, and it's not a real cause for concern? And do babies moving less even though there is no distress as captured on a biophysical profile after 42 weeks, is it really cause for concern? Briefly on the last part, I trust the biophysical profile, always have. And if the biophysical profile is normal, 10 out of 10, then the likelihood of an adverse event, meaning that's a euphemism for, I guess, fetal demise or severe fetal injury is less than 1%. And if it's true at 40 weeks, it's also true at 42 weeks. Um, the getting nervous part that, that uh, Susan said she did, she was starting to worry, um, is normal. And, and that in and of itself is an indication to be induced. Uh, because a worried mammal doesn't necessarily labor properly. So, you know, if you're starting to worry a lot, then, you know, having the baby in your arms might be the, the best choice for you. But I trust that the biophysical profile is, if it's at 42 weeks as normal, you can wait three days and, and do it again. But let's talk a little bit about placental and placental aging, because uh, uh, people always talk about a calcification of a placenta or what's called a grade three placenta. And, you know, and, and depending when you see it, there is significance to it or not. A grade three placenta is normal after about 38 or 39 weeks. You don't have to have one. I mean, it's fine if you don't, but it's not an abnormal finding at 38, 39, 40 weeks or beyond. So if they found a grade three placenta on you at 41 or 42 weeks, that, that's actually normal. And a placenta that's not perfusing well is gonna be reflected hopefully in the biophysical profile the first thing you might see is decreased fetal urine output, which will result in decreasing amniotic fluid volume. Um, so, you know, if you're doing the testing and it's normal, then the grade of the placenta isn't significant. And I did a little research on that. And I, I couldn't find statistics about grade three placenta and, and 
and fetal demise or bad outcome. But a grade zero placenta is normal less than 18 weeks. A grade one placenta, which is little spot, grade zero placenta means no white flecks on ultrasound, no calcifications. A grade zero placenta, I mean, a grade one placenta has little white specks sort of randomized throughout. And that's normal between 18 and 29 weeks. A grade two placenta, which is where they're starting to form little lines, the white specks, they haven't formed complete semicircles yet, which are uh, the grade three where they're calcified and you can actually see the individual cotyledons. Um, but a grade two placenta is normal between 30 and 38 weeks. So if you see a grade placenta at, at, at 32 weeks, that can be normal, but you can't, God, I, this gets me so frustrated. You, you, can't, um, you can't judge a, you can't make a judgment on one isolated finding. You have to take the whole clinical picture. This is what's really hard for some people to understand. It's really hard when people write me and they ask me one question, one specific question about something. What do you think of this? And I said, I, I can't individualize your care. I can't give you a, an opinion about you specifically. I can only talk in general terms because, you know, a grade two placenta at 32 weeks isn't necessarily a problem if everything else is normal. But if the baby's growth restricted, if they've got Doppler flow studies, if they've got decreased amniotic fluid for whatever reason or fundal heights measuring small or whatever, um, then it might have some significance taken in the whole picture. I hope that all makes sense. Um, some of the things that can cause premature calcification of the placenta are coast smoking which we talked about earlier, which fewer and fewer people are doing, I think at least in our world uh, out here in, uh, on, the, on the West Coast. Uh, I mean, smoking has been uh, stigmatized so that you, know, you can't really smoke anywhere without someone giving you an evil eye. Um, chronic hypertension will do it. Uh, things like connective tissue diseases like lupus can do it. Um, diabetes type one can cause premature aging of the placenta. So, but, but when you look at um, articles about grade of placenta and problems, it never says a grade three placenta causes this. It says, it always says it, it may, or it could. So that's hedging. There's a lot of hedging that goes on in my profession when it comes to, and as it should be, because we have to be really careful about, about how we say things because people pick up on it right away. And I, you know, I do a lot of sort of correcting for what women hear from their maternal fetal medicine uh, practitioner, either here or, or other other locations. When I when they write me or email me, I hear things like like um, that this is that this is dangerous, and it really it really isn't necessarily dangerous. It may be a problem, but again, without the whole picture, you can't even say that. Um, yeah, so the, so the answer to her question is, do, do placentas normally calcify with age? Yes. It's not a real cause for concern? No, not as an isolated finding, it is not. Um, when the doctor said, it's a good thing that I decided to be induced when I did, what did he mean or she? And my thing is, my feeling is, is that doctor thinks that a grade three placenta is a problem. Now, maybe there was something else going on. Maybe there was no fluid. Maybe there was a lot of meconium. Maybe there was something else going on that he said that the placenta seemed to be giving out. But just because it was calcified doesn't necessarily mean that. And to say something like that, maybe it's self-serving, maybe, self maybe it's honest, I don't know. 
It's a good thing I decided to be induced when I did. Maybe he's just being supportive. Okay, I don't know. And it, may, and it could very well be true. And that's why it's really, again, it's very difficult when I get these letters to, to comment and I'm not ever trying to undermine, well, that I shouldn't say ever. There are times where I mock other people, what they say, because it's really stupid. Nothing about this is, is wrong or stupid and it could be taken out of context, all right? Um, I don't know about the location of calcifications. He probably meant the, the distribution, I suspect. And the super short cord is, um, I'm not sure why that's significant at all. Um, baby's labor with a super short cord. I mean, I don't even know what a super short cord is. Okay, so I love that. I love the terminology. Anyway, so Susan, I hope that helps answer your question. I'm gonna go on to the next letter, which is from Kathleen in Illinois. And I think Deborah, you're on. Yeah, you are, good. Okay, so this is uh, one of the people listening's client. And this is about IUGR. And this also reinforces what I just said about Susan's letter about, it's really hard to give consults and opinions by email, all right? When and people are asking specific questions and I really hesitate to do that. And I, even if they wanted to set up a Zoom meeting and pay me for a consult, without looking through their old records, without looking at uh, hands-on on the body or doing my own ultrasound, to give an opinion, it's, it's not really good medicine. It's sort of like diagnosing someone with a psychiatric illness when you've never really interviewed them just by the way they appear on television. Um, and that's not right to do that. And it's certainly not right to do it here either. But I'm gonna read this letter. This is from Kathleen in Urbana, Illinois. I'm 34 turning 35 in March is how she starts her letter. So just from that very sentence, I already know that someone has planted a seed in her mind that 35 is significant. If I can say one more thing about that, it's not significant. 35 is an arbitrary number. And, I'll, and you guys have heard me say that, uh, well, dozens of times. But that's how she starts her letter. So clearly someone has implanted that in her brain. She's currently 36 weeks and three days pregnant. And this was written a week ago, uh, four days ago. So she's now 37 weeks. Uh, my second baby, uh, uh, well, I'll skip that. What, telling me what we're naming it. I've been planning it for a home VBAC with a midwife um, and she suggested I email you for your opinion about some developments in my pregnancy. And I would very much like the opportunity to attempt a VBAC. In my first pregnancy in 2017, I was diagnosed with mild preeclampsia at 36 weeks, five days with a, a triple threat, a high blood pressure swelling and protein in her urine. She was induced with Cervidil at 37 weeks um, it started labor on its own, but the, uh, during labor, the baby began having recurrent late D cells after only a few hours. And so they did a relatively emergent cesarean birth. I love that Kathleen says a relatively emergent cesarean birth rather than an emergent cesarean birth, because people will always say I had an emergency C-section and then I'll ask the question, like, well, from the decision to make a C-section till they got you in the operating room, how long was it? And they'll tell me, oh, about 45 minutes or something like that. So again, that is not a reason. I mean, that is not an emergency C-section. Emergency C-section is where they they sort of run you screaming, screaming down the hallway, you know, calling a code, that whole thing and getting everybody scrambling. That's an emergency C-section. We began having serial growth scans with this baby, but they did not pick up that he was growth restricted. The day I was induced, his estimated weight was over six pounds, but he was born at five pounds, six ounces and diagnosed as small for gestational age, okay? 
So I did a little uh, research on that and I looked at um, 37 weeks, which is what she was about the time she delivered, I guess. Um, five pounds, six ounces in the, is in the 10th percentile. So the 10th percentile is, could be small, could be normal, all right? Um, I don't know what is normal for her, but I know that she says, further down she says, um, her first baby uh, was born measuring in, uh, in the eighth percentile. Um, and he still, at this point, still runs uh, in his 10th percentile as a three-year-old. And she's a small person and she weighed six and a half pounds at birth. So she does ask, you know, uh, what's your opinion regarding differentiating between a true IUGR and constitutionally small babies? And you have to take that into account. But first of all, a baby in the 10th percentile is not growth restricted. Growth restrictions we talked about a couple podcasts ago is when a baby's falling dramatically off its own growth curve. A baby that's at the 10th percentile could be if it, uh, a perfectly normal baby because some babies are normal and they have to be in order to have a bell-shaped curve. That's how it works. So again, they it, it shows the inaccuracy of ultrasound and it also shows that she, at five pounds, six ounces was called uh, small for gestational age at 37 weeks, which is actually the 10th percentile. Upon examination, the baby's placenta was found to have significant infarction so obviously, I'm not sure what that means, whether it's grade three or, or whether they did a pathology report or whatever, and he had a hypercoiled umbilical cord. Now, if you have parts of your placenta that are infarcted, that, that would certainly lead to an intolerance to labor. It makes perfect sense that, that this baby may not have been growing well and baby certainly wasn't going to tolerate labor and that everything that was done was appropriate, but it's really hard to say, uh, Kathleen. Um, and I'm not sure what, what the significance of you mentioning a hypercoiled umbilical cord means. I don't know why that's significant. To me, that just means that when the baby was small, the baby was moving a lot. Um, pregnancy, our big worry was a complete placenta. Oh, this pregnancy, that was all last time, I guess. This complete pregnancy, I'm sorry, the pregnancy, uh, this pregnancy, our big worry was a complete placenta previa. I'm, I'm trying to read and think at the same time here. Diagnosed at my mid-pregnancy anatomy scan. Thankfully, I have been asymptomatic with no bleeding at all. And as this week has been completely resolved and is now 3.5 centimeters away from my cervix. Okay, so I did get a little confused. The baby I was talking about initially was her first pregnancy. And that baby was born at five pounds, six ounces at 37 weeks. So this baby is now 30, uh, let's see, 36 weeks and is measuring at the eighth percentile of five pounds, two ounces, which is exactly the same as her first baby. And they've also given her a diagnosis once again of IUGR. I can't, you know how I feel about that. His placenta is still grade one. Doppler arterial flow is normal. Non-stress test was category one. Reassuring, and he scored an eight out of eight on a biophysical profile. Technically that's a 10 out of 10 uh, because the non-stress test should be included in that. Her blood pressure is stable. She has no signs or symptoms of preeclampsia. She's been taking baby or she's been taking aspirin uh, since 12 weeks in pregnancy. Her OBGYN, we have been consulting with about the previa, has recommended inducing between 38 and 39 weeks with follow-up biophysical profile and Doppler next week. I have been doing some research and it seems like the limited studies that do exist show mixed evidence about inducing for IUGR 
versus watchful waiting. Okay. Now, again, my feeling on this is going to be pretty straightforward. If the fetal environment is normal and the baby is on the smaller side and consistent with previous pregnancies and has normal fluid and no all that other stuff and normal Doppler and all that stuff, I, I, I'm a big fan of waiting for labor, right? I think that inductions carry their own risks plus your previous cesarean section. Um, they're gonna have low tolerance for you. You're gonna be restricted in your movement. You're gonna be monitored entirely. Uh, they're gonna be prepared for you to have an emergency C-section, which is gonna make the, every, the whole environment a little bit more tense. So that would be my feeling is that if everything else is normal, they can just continue to survey the baby. Um, I, of course, worry that the placenta may be functioning poorly because I had a previous baby who didn't tolerate labor. Um, she again says she's a small person. We talked about that already. Uh, she says, what is your opinion about inducing for IUGR versus watchful waiting? I think you've gotten that. I think if it's true IUGR, you're going to see other signs besides the baby being a little bit on the smaller side um, and maybe falling off the growth curve or other uh, fetal parameters that would do that. And yes, then getting the baby out uh, while that may still have a chance of tolerating labor makes perfect sense. Because again, the longer you go, if the placenta is compromised in some way, then the less likely it is the baby's going to tolerate labor. So it's a juggling act. It's a balancing act between watchful waiting, which as you know, is what you'd like versus waiting too long. And then the baby not tolerating labor when it comes, or if you get induced because the problem develops and ending up with a repeat C-section. These are the cards you've been dealt. And uh, again, you have to discuss this with your midwife and find out what she's comfortable with, uh, taking in all the information. I've tried to analyze as the best I could, but I cannot give you specific, you should do this or you shouldn't do that. That would be ethically and professionally the wrong thing to do. Okay, so in general, uh, I'm for waiting. I'm for, I'm for spontaneous labor, I'm for natural childbirth, but all of you know that. Uh, okay. Uh, again, if you have any of questions on what I'm saying today, certainly, I'm sorry, I can't take time to look at the chats, but um, you can email me at askdrstu, that's A-S-K-D-R-S-T-U at gmail.com. And I will be more than happy to respond to your questions. Keep them short and, uh, and keep them um, general. Thanks. Okay. So the next uh, letter is from Kristen and Kristen is in Tennessee and she writes about a breech baby. And she writes, I really, I recently was introduced to your website and podcast. Thank you for everything that you do to empower women and have the births that they want. You're welcome. I found out my baby was breech at 30 week ultrasound. My initial impression is why did they do a 30 week ultrasound? But that's the way my brain thinks. Uh, but my midwife thought by 44 weeks, he was head down by palpation. However, at my 36 week appointment with her, I found out my baby was breech again by palpation. Good for the midwife, good. I have been doing some inversions and tilts and starting to get adjusted by Webster certified chiropractor at the end of last week. Baby's still breech, I can still feel his head. Okay, my next appointment with my midwife is tomorrow, which would be today, because uh, I got this email yesterday. I'll be 38 weeks, you will likely try to get me scheduled with an OB for an ECV. If the ECV or external version is unsuccessful, which she puts in parentheses, which I honestly expect to be, since my uterus always feel tight and I get a lot of Braxton Hicks, all right? But she's a multip, so we'll talk about that in a second. 
I want to attempt a vaginal breech birth if I'm a good candidate. I had a home birth with my first baby two and a half years ago. She was eight pounds seven. I labored for 10 hours, six hours in labor, four hours of pushing. With this baby, as long as he is frank or complete, I want to attempt a vaginal breech birth as I would like to have more children and really want to avoid a cesarean section unless absolutely necessary. I love that she said that because this is a question that other doctors rarely ask a woman when they're recommending a cesarean section for some reason that may be obstetrical and indicated or may be obstetrical and not indicated, such as properly selected breech birth. But they don't ask, especially a first time mom, they don't ask her if she wants more children because they don't consider the cesarean section to be risky and they don't think about the risks that it's adding to all future pregnancies, as well as the increased uh, um, acute maternal morbidity um, to the mother. So from the cesarean section. My midwife was trained in vaginal breech births. I love Tennessee, home of the farm. I don't know if that's where you're going, but she says and has assisted in 70 plus of them in her 40 some year career. So 40 some year career. I mean, I, I don't know that. I think she's talking about Ina May. I don't know that Ina May is still actually doing work, but there's gotta be a lot of midwives that are working out there as long as Ina May has and good for Tennessee. In a lot of ways, good for Tennessee. I will need to ask her more questions to see how confident she is to handle any possible complications, but I think she's capable. I'm a little nervous about it, but I'm trying to get all the confidence I can to encourage me and build my confidence. So her questions are one, how close to the estimated due date do you recommend an ultrasound to confirm baby's position? I don't, I don't. I, I think that you should, again, if I, if I have a breech baby and it's a properly selected breech baby, then you go into labor. If I come to your house and the baby turns out to be head down, great. And if it's breech, it's breech. So, because an ultrasound is uh, to confirm the baby's position prior to labor, it doesn't really mean anything because babies can turn at the last minute. I, I can't tell you how many times women have come to me where they had an ultrasound the day before for, and it was breech and they came in for a version and I would scan them and the baby was head down. There's even evidence that babies can turn in labor. So I wouldn't count on that. And I would never tell people to, Go into labor, and if you it's breached and you need a C-section, have it you know wait to see what happens. Uh, well, I do tell people that, but it's for a different reason. Um, but don't expect the baby to turn to vertex once it's in labor. But there are classic pictures of babies with fetal scalp electrodes on their head who are in the breech position, which means that the baby was head down and turned. Um, so I don't necessarily use ultrasound at that point. I only use ultrasound to help determine whether the baby qualifies as a good candidate for a safe turn breech delivery. Um, would I be a candidate for a vaginal breech birth as long as the baby's butt is presenting first? Absolutely you would. And the nine criteria that I use, since we're running out of time, I'm gonna go through them really quick. Um, our term, frank or complete breech, no gross anomalies of the baby, estimated fetal weight between five and nine and a half pounds, flexed head, normal maternal pelvis, which you have because you tested it already and it works great. Um, labor needing to start, this for home birthing, labor needs to start spontaneously. Mother and baby need to tolerate labor and you have to have the right mindset and your midwife has to be confident and, and she is. So you, if, if your baby, the only things I don't know is your baby's head flex, which I'm sure it is. Is your baby frank or complete breach? I'm almost certain it, it's going to be because that's what the huge majority of babies are at term who are breech. Um, and I'm sure your estimated fetal weight is in the normal range. So yes, you would, you would be a candidate. What would disqualify you would be 
if there's cord presenting, if the baby's head is extended and doesn't seem to want to flex because maybe the baby has torticollis or a goiter or something weird that's pushing the head back. But there's very little that would disqualify a multiparous woman. And my success rate, and I'm sure that your midwife will verify this, the success rate with multips who have a properly selected term breach is going to be close to 100%. So good luck. I hope you'll let me know how it turns out. You're not putting your baby at risk. But by the way, when you ask that, I don't want a C-section, but I also don't want to put my baby at risk. Just really briefly, uh, there is no, no risk, okay? When the sperm and the egg unite, risk is inherent, all right? What you wanna do is minimize your risk. And you wanna minimize your risk by properly selecting a breech birth and that you want more children, you wanna avoid a cesarean, that's smart. So go for it. Okay, um, we're gonna skip this. Well, I have a little story on the birth rate. Maybe we'll save that for another time. I wanted to end today um, with a article that was sent to me by my sister, which was sent to her by my cousin, uh, which I just found fascinating, it has nothing to do with birth, but it has to do with siblings. I'm going to hold this up to the camera so that you can see it, but this is a picture. And if you can see this is from the American Jewish world uh, from 1939, and this is, these are my ancestors. Okay, the lady in the middle seated it would be my grandmother who I never met and would be Maddie's great-grandmother who of course <laughs> she never met either, all right? And it's an article about how different the world was 80 years ago because this, this, is, this is a reunion. Brothers and sisters who hadn't seen each other for several decades met again last Sunday at the marriage of my, my aunt and my uncle-in-law at, their home, at the home of my other uncle in, in North Minneapolis. And they talk about who these people are. And they say that Sam Confeld of Canada hadn't seen his brother, Hi, Jacob, and David for 22 years. Okay, can you imagine? Can you imagine? I mean, with today's tech and stuff like that and Zoom and <laughs> FaceTime and mail and... Uh, airplane travel and how easy it was that to not see your brother, your sisters for 22 years. It just, it's hard to contemplate what life was like. And that's only 80 years ago, only 80 years ago. Um, one of the brothers only saw them last 28 years ago. while he and Samuel hadn't met for one of the, Peter and Samuel hadn't met for 37 years. Mrs. Fishbein, my grandma, hadn't seen Samuel and Peter for 20 years. When Peter and Samuel first met, they kissed each other fondly. Peter then asked Hi who this man was. Why, that's Sam, said Hi. <laughs> so, back, so back Peter went to embrace Sam once more. But Peter was bothered. Sam who? He asked Hi. It seems that there were several Sams in the Mishpacha, which is Yiddish for family. Hyman, with a tear in his eye, took his older brother, Peter, over to Sam and said, this is your brother, Sam. With that said, Peter and Sam then embraced in earnest. The 30, 37 intervening years had proved too great a span to recognize a brother last seen in the youth. All right. So don't take our families for granted. Don't take our children for granted. Don't take your parents for granted. Um, 
arrive five minutes early. Could be my new mantra. Uh, and anyway, so this has been, I, I thank you for joining me, all of you, Anna, Becky, Danny, Deborah, Jennifer, Megan, Lorena, and several of you who came and went. Uh, I really appreciate that. Looking forward to um, posting this will be on Rumble. And we're going to get our podcast app back up on on, uh, on your smartphone. I don't know why it even disappeared. But, um, I mean, it didn't disappear, but why they stopped loading. So we're fixing that today. Uh, and we'll get those podcasts. I think 193 and on have not been posted on uh, your podcast app for the audio. But for, for the video, you can go to um, rumble.com. And the key, my, my handle is at Birthing Instincts. Okay, so... Um, I know for a fact that many of you have many, many things to do every day and uh, giving me an hour of your time once a week is fantastic for me and I'm so grateful for it because I, I know that time is precious. So thank you all for tuning in. Uh, I hope you learned something. Please share. Please give us the five stars. Please give us, uh, um, uh, write us a good recommendation and I'll see you next week. As Bliss would say, bye-bye.